Mysteries, Chad, Honky Tonk Woman, Practical Joker, and Nine Lives. I'm your other co-host, Robert. This is Reenacted, an Unsolved Mysteries podcast. So, um, Crystal, you, <laughs> you... Wow, that was really serious. Yeah, you, well, you you, yeah. you you didn't want to lead in with me uh, uh, looking after a kid, a friend's kid today and, and Call of Duty and all the stuff mm-hmm. that delayed me and... <laughs> recording so let's talk about whatever it was you are apparently want to talk about <laughs> yeah plenty of inane delays on my end too to get recording today so i could bitch about amazon prime once again but i think that's pretty well-trod territory i don't know if you have looked at our stats lately for plays of the podcast no because like to look at soundcloud like to like be logged in mm-hmm. I really have to be on this mm-hmm. laptop because, uh, like, mm-hmm. I do most of my web stuff on this tablet. And when I try to go to SoundCloud mm-hmm. on the tablet, it, it, I, I'm not a technology guy. So the tablet, the, the it's like, you want to download the, the SoundCloud app? I was like, can I just go to the SoundCloud website like I do on a normal computer? Mm-hmm. And I just sort of give up out of despair. But... I so to answer your question, the actual question you asked, no, I have not. Mm-hmm. Um, well, there seems to have been during the first week of July, which is immediately following when Netflix released Unsolved Mysteries, the reboot, there seems to have been a very precipitous jump in the number of <laughs> plays that we got. Uh, I also noticed that there was an increase in the amount of iTunes reviews that we received and um i also we had also purchased um some time on another podcast that i don't actually i don't actually know if that ad is ad is aired or not i really have no idea because i haven't kept up with that podcast sorry Uh, but uh i am assuming that both things happened in tandem so the netflix reboot came out and then this ad on this other podcast came out uh and i i was looking at some of the reviews that had been left and um, people were, people have been overwhelming. I'm not trying to focus on the negative here because people have written some really heartwarming reviews and the fact that anyone continues to listen to us talk about anything is pretty amazing to me. So thank you to everyone who is, if you're new, welcome. If you've been around for a while, thank you for sticking around. Thank you for, uh, apparently telling your friends about us too so there were some reviews though that were like one or two stars or something and people seemed uh very irritated by i guess the episode a couple a couple of weeks ago where we opened talking about preferred methods of uh loading unloading the dishwasher <laughs> and uh really <laughs> Yeah, that got called out. There was another people didn't really uh care for us talking about pie at length, which again whatever. Uh and and finally there was a number of reviews that seemed pretty upset that we were having a good time talking to each other. <laughs> that was my takeaway. 
Um, Interesting. <laughs> that it was just two two friends having a good time, and that was not their jam. So they're they're more wanting us to take like a season uh, four of Breaking Bad route, where there becomes like this this tension and division between us, and you don't know whether Maybe. like one of us is going to off the other until you know circumstances Mm -hmm. end up so that at the end of the season we are once again on the same side perhaps maybe (sighs) they want dramatic tension maybe they want something more that's a little bit more journalistic Mm. yeah um, i guess that could be that yeah yeah um you know the funny thing is right there in the description again uh just i call us a couple of dummies that just happened to like the show Unsolved Mysteries. And we're very specific about this not being a news broad- broadcast in the same way that Unsolved Mysteries is not a news broadcast. Right. Um, here's here's my, my take on this. I wasn't even offended because then I, I went and I started looking uh, at iTunes reviews for my favorite podcast. And that podcast, and I've listened to it since 2016. So... I think the podcast itself was going on a five-year run at this point. It's called Doughboys. Now, ostensibly, it is two uh, L.A. Uh, comedy performers and writers here. They're friends, and I'm making scare quotes around the word friends, who review each week a chain restaurant. And that's the basic premise of the show. Is that actually what the show's about? No. The, the show is actually about two... Um, men who are slowly killing themselves for our entertainment that also kind of hate each other, but have now been locked into this really popular podcast where they can't get away from each other. I may have to start checking out the Doughboys. That actually sounds it's, pretty amusing. It's, uh, it's, yeah, but I mean, it's, they call, you know, they just, in their description say, it's, you know, it's a podcast about reviewing chain restaurants. So if you were to go into Doughboys and expect it to just to be a hard hitting critique of like Arby's or something, um, you would be pretty disappointed when the first hour of them is just talking about like Star Wars and like, um, you know, and then rehashing an argument from two years ago, you know, it's. I, I, if I, me trying to describe this isn't doing it any justice, but I realize, you know, they have a brand and either you love it or you don't. And I was, I was sort of heartened by the fact that we have so many more reviews now. Yes, did it bring our iTunes rating down from where it was? Sure. But sometimes any kind of press is good, right? I think in the last week or two, there was probably like at least once that where somebody wrote something, it was like four or five. New oh, reviews. God. So. Not not a lot, but more than we normally. Receive. Well, yeah, I mean, we our standard average is to get like four or five in a year. Yeah, something like that. <laughs> I think we're over fifty now. We have over fifty reviews total, or people have at least given a star rating. Ratings, okay, yes. Yeah. So, but not actually written anything. So, if you like the podcast, please go on to iTunes and give us five stars. Yeah. <laughs> oh God. Well. I, you know, I have to say this, once again, this will never, ever be a situation where we're trying to solve a case. Uh, We have no interest in doing that. Um, Mostly we're locked in because we've been doing this for a few years now. When Robbie and I started this podcast, and I feel pretty comfortable speaking for you, Robbie. uh, Yeah. But, but, you know, correct me if I'm wrong. 
Uh, we kind of remembered the show being more like Bigfoot and UFO stuff than like true crime. <laughs> so <laughs> when we realized that the majority of the show was going to be talking about people who had been murdered or um, separated from loved ones, uh, you know, I, I've certainly regretted it since, but I, I really do feel like we're locked in at this point. Um, we kind of are. I mean, with, yeah. <laughs> would it, wouldn't it be hilarious if the very next episode that people downloaded, it was just us reviewing an episode of sightings. We just switch and we don't tell anyone that we pretend that we are doing yeah. sightings all along. Not that I, well, un- I feel- unfortunately, <laughs> I don't think sightings is available I mean, in terms of the full episodes Mm -hmm. through some outlet, just whatever people recorded off VHS and have since uploaded to YouTube. Right. I mean, that's a real, it's a real, uh, if we got some pirated tapes or something, we could probably do that. Yeah. I'm of the opinion that, you know, people, they walked in the door for Unsolved Mysteries and they stayed for us. And so I think... It is maybe a little bit self-indulgent, as I have been now for about nine minutes, talking about our iTunes review situation, <laughs> but more about podcasting in general, which is if you want a super serious, hard-hitting Unsolved Mysteries podcast, I can think of, just off the top of my head, um, six other Unsolved Mysteries podcasts that exist. Um, there's plenty of really serious true crime, well-investigated stuff out there. There's Sword and Scale. There's a bunch of podcast i can recommend if that's your jam but not only is the true crime podcast market completely saturated what what the fuck would we be bringing to the table anyway we don't we're not we're not people who love murder you know what i mean oh i certainly every time i've committed one i've never really loved the experience so Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, same yeah yeah, i well and that's the thing actually you mentioned the six or seven other unsolved mysteries podcasts but having listened Mm -hmm. to all of them i mean we're all kind of basically the same if you listen to any one of Mm -hmm. those it's going to be friends who talking about you know the uh some obscure memory that's only funny to them uh i guess i guess if you're if you're looking for a serious blow by blow account of of unsolved mysteries episodes you're shit mm-hmm. out of luck or you can start or your you can own start your own there you go <laughs> the barrier to entry into podcasting is very low if you so, do start your own and you want to get some advertising for your podcast we are definitely willing to play a promo for you in exchange for a small fee yeah or just you know deleting your shitty itunes review that you left for us <laughs> i'll accept um, either yeah i mean we're open to being bribed frankly uh you know so all of that said do you want to talk about a really like mediocre episode of unsolved mysteries you know it's funny when you when you mentioned that we had a, a huge huge increase in people listening to the show i was like mm-hmm. oh god because we had a we had a fairly mediocre episode uh episode we had to watch not too long ago and i remember when we wrapped that episode up i was like i sure hope this isn't the one that's at the top of the list when people start (laughs) yeah i don't i don't know how people like start listening to a new podcast and they go to the first episode ever they pick one at random. i pick one at random based on what the title of it is so yeah i don't know but 
I, I find uh, it seems like there's there's a lot that do listen to the most recent episode and quite a few who go to the first episode. And I mean, my strategy is kind of, yeah, just go to like a topic that I find interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But yeah, let's talk about Unsolved Mysteries, which is why we're ostensibly recording. And I can only imagine that this opening has already enraged those people who are were so upset about dishwashing loading techniques and, <laughs> and pie. Well, uh, I'm about to upset them even more because, and Connor, don't cut this out. I hate to do this, Robbie, but I have to use the restroom and I'm going to leave it recording. And then we're going to talk about Unsolved Mystery. Okay. So the first segment is a... Unexplained death? Unexplained death. Oh, Chad. Yeah. You know what was weird about this segment is on um, is that uh, it was just called Chad. Just the segment was called Chad in the Amazon Prime description. <laughs> that intern was uh, really struggling to figure out a title. This is an unexplained death segment uh, that takes us to Madison, Wisconsin, with a 19-year-old man named Chad Marr, who looks like a Chad. <laughs> yeah, tall, I mean, just blonde. picture like a yeah, picture a 90s Chad, and that's Chad. Uh, yeah, I mean, if if you just if the bully from the Karate Kid had like a little like fuller hair. Uh, sort of along those lines, but yes, uh, Chad, as it turned out, worked in a, worked in a bicycle shop. And if you saw that episode of different, different strokes, you know, that's very hazardous occupation though. Apparently it didn't have anything to do with why he ended up, uh, being killed. Uh, mm-hmm. so we have a reenactment of, he came home for lunch from his job and, mm-hmm we get this reenactment of like, he's like talking about how he has to go back to work. And, you know, as both his parents are coming out the, out of the house after him, his mom trying to, I asking him if he needs anything and his dad bringing him over gas money, gave, gave him the entire bill. And, you know, it's just said, fill her up. And wow. then Chad disappears. He didn't show up at work. Two days later, uh, a maintenance worker found his body inside of the car in a garage on the south side of Chicago. The Chicago police ruled his death a suicide. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't until the family uh, was with the funeral director that they Mm -hmm. began to suspect that this may not have been the case uh, because carbon monoxide poisoning typically doesn't result in like the skin on your knuckles being completely stripped away and bruises Mm -hmm. uh, being inflicted on your face. And then I Mm -hmm. guess the the funeral director showed Chad's father, his shirt, which is covered in blood. Uh, So the parents are a bit suspicious uh, and we get, they get a private, I think what, no, not a private detective, but a detective who works for the, for Matt city of Madison to look mm-hmm. into, uh, into the case. And we basically get this hypothesis put forward to us that, uh, Chad might've been involved in some sort of drug deal. That's, that's mm-hmm. sort of a theory that's floated that 
there's a there's apparently a Madison to Chicago drug pipeline sort of thing, mm-hmm. and I think the the Madison uh, detective he he ex- expressed the sentiment that he didn't think that Chad was transporting narcotics, but that he some bad influence in his life kind of wrapped up wrapped him up in like being a uh, like a delivery person or something for something and uh unfortunately it ended badly for him um now this segment i found really fascinating because we we get like this hypothesis put forward that when he arrived in chicago the transaction went bad and they depict basically depict this garage full of people start wailing on him and Mm -hmm. stuff him into the car and i guess the idea was that they uh, uh you know turned on the car to either make it look like he committed suicide through um, uh, through carbon monoxide poisoning or to, you know, finish him off and accomplish, uh, accomplish the subterfuge. But um, what I found most fascinated about the, about the segment is we kind of have a crime show within a crime show situation because they show a what i guess was a local uh crime solving program called crime stoppers that aired in madison oh. wisconsin oh did you did you not see it what oh, that's right because of amazon prime's uh, shitty service you yeah, did not see the fuckery. ending yeah I cut off my segment what was, yeah what was the last part that you saw um, it was it was just stack narrating something in the middle of the segment, and then it went to commercial, and then it froze, and then when I came back, reopened the episode, I was already on the next segment. Oh, okay, so, yes, we. It's a problem. Yeah, yeah, we we there there is this yeah there like I said there's this crime program within a crime program thing because there's this uh, there was like apparently this program called crime stoppers that aired locally in madison and uh so we actually get cl- uh, footage of that so we get a host that's not robert stack discussing the case um <laughs> uh, it's it's this police woman uh kind of middle-aged uh just standing in a park somewhere you don't really see much footage from that but it the unsolved mysteries informs us that she, uh, or, or rather the program, uh, when it aired, an anonymous tipster reported in that Ch- Chad had been involved in a drug deal with people from uh, his apartment complex in Madison. And that uh, the people that he was supposed to be involved in this deal with, they had previously lived at the same location that Chad's body was found at in Chicago. So the, the hypothesis is, is these were people that were involved with drug trade in Chicago are now living in Madison and they meet Chad, you know, at, at the apartment where where they live at the apartment complex and they get him roped in into going to, I guess, make a delivery to their associates in, in Chicago. Um, but there actually, 
there did not turn out to be any sort of resolution to this case. Uh, I'm sorry if that, well, that's a crushing revelation. I'm reading in the wiki there that Chad's parents divorced in 2007. Oh, that sucks. So, yeah. Well, but like they stayed together. 17 years. Okay, so I guess yeah. it, it presumably wasn't the pressure of, of what happened to Chad that destroyed the marriage. Yeah. They, they, they stuck together for quite, quite, quite some time. Uh, yeah, there you have it. Great. Uh, that sucks. Sorry, Chad, that, that happened to you. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm sorry because it, just watching this segment was so unendingly frustrating. I, di- I didn't pick up a lot of things other than the beginning when um, Chad was the most Chad he could be. Um, I'm wondering. Man, though, he, he, looked, situ- he looked at his, you know, at his peak in that bike shop. Like he was showing people bicycles. Mm-hmm. I think when he mm-hmm. in the reenactment when he comes home for lunch, he actually brags about selling someone a bicycle. So I, I think obviously the implication is clear that at some point he was going to be selling cars um, and and do, being very successful at it. I'm a horrible salesperson. Like I cannot. Get, oh yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. I, I, when, what have you tried to sell? Candidates for office. <laughs> okay. Well, yeah. I mean, I'm. But That's... but but no, I I can't like I I I you know some people have the knack you know to to get mm-hmm. someone to buy something, and you know maybe I mean it's just a little bit of a re, uh, reenactment we have to go off of, but it seems to suggest that maybe Chad has the right sort of charisma to to be making these sales, whereas like I cannot get people to buy something that they actually want much less. <laughs> so that's, that's where I'm at. <laughs> yeah. I, I, uh, I'm not very good, obviously <laughs> at self-promotion or selling myself, but, um, I was, I feel like the last time I had a sales job, I was pretty good at it, you know? Um, but yeah, the last time I went canvassing for a political candidate, it's just, it's such sweaty, desperate work it is. just trying to get, but it's a lot different than someone who's like walking into a store and wants to buy something versus like going door to door calling people, you know. Right, so right. But yeah, it's 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 not work for introverts, that's for sure. I wonder if Chad though in doing in getting caught up in this drug business though, I wonder if it was a situation where he just w- wanted to take a little bit of a walk on the uh wanted to slum it a little bit, you know? Right. Cause it's, yeah. it's a three, three hours in a world of difference between Madison and the uh, South side of Chicago in the late eighties, early nineties. So yes, yes. I'm wondering if he just was looking for thrills and got, uh, got caught up in it, you know? Well, from my understanding, young people of the age of 19 typically are looking for excitement. Uh, whereas, whereas I was not, uh, 19. What were you, what were you, yeah. What were you doing at 19? Was I, was that when I was writing my Tron fan fiction or my Babylon five fan mm. fiction? Mm. Not sure. No. It must've, it sounds like it was a really confusing time for you. <laughs> well, I, you know, the commonality was Bruce Boxleiter. So, I mean, it, it's, it's not like it was a hard shift from one fandom to the other. 
Anyway, moving on. <laughs> yeah, should we talk about the next segment? Let's talk about the next segment. It's a lost air segment, which is a category that we don't get too often. Yeah, and you know the way this starts, it kind of it was feeling like a um it was feeling like a lost loves situation because the story that we get is told by Lorene Roberts' older older younger sister. Um Lorene um you know what's also weird about this though is they with open the segment <laughs> with a discussion of like the homelessness crisis in the United States. They do. Um, but that actually really has nothing to do with the rest of the segment it, that we're right. It, it doesn't come, come up other than that. There, there was speculation at the end of the segment, like, yeah, perhaps she could be in that situation, uh, which strange. Uh, yeah. So, but, but she does not. And strangely enough, uh, it's no. actually the lost love segment later in this episode, <laughs> episode mm-hmm. that, that involves homelessness. So yeah, I, I think, I don't I, it's like they they zigged and then they zagged with the update I hope, on this one. I hope someone on the show got fired for this. <laughs> <laughs> well, they were playing the odds that Lorene was was going to turn up and have been uh, homeless, but that's not not exactly what happened. So, making making a very long story short, because it really isn't terribly interesting. Um, uh. Oh, except for this really gross reenactment. So it oh, was in high school in Texas and this is like in the fifties or something uh, or in the forties. I'm sorry. Yeah. And she ends up dropping out of high school for unknown reasons, quote unquote. And then she's working as a waitress in Austin, Texas. Well, then there's a reenactment where this young serviceman who's at a table with other young servicemen, come into her diner and this guy's like being like really like pickup artisty and like oh the moment he aggressive the moment he spoke i just hated his guts it was mm-hmm. just like this mm-hmm. i don't condescending is not even the right term it was just this sort yeah. of presumption presumption on his part that like as soon as he yeah. started talking to her that she should just be fawning over him yeah, but he was, like, snapping his fingers and shit to get her attention. Like, waitress, put <laughs> yes. some coffee over here. <laughs> and then it, and then he tried to turn that into flirting. But I don't know. She Ten days later, she marries this guy, okay? So. Yeah. Because we're all making really informed and great decisions in our teens, as we just went over in the previous, previous one. Yeah. Um, uh, anywho, so she marries this guy. She has three kids. Uh, they end up moving to New Jersey or something. Yeah, they move to New Jersey, and then his family is like, "We don't like you. Please go away." So they bought her a train ticket back to Austin and sent all of her kids with her. Which again, I thought was very strange because I don't know. Sometimes when you have like a really weird family-in-law situation they try and take the kids so they guess yeah it seemed either. to be that like um, the guy's mother really really disliked her and i mean this mm-hmm. they don't say it in the segment but the sense i got was that the mom was like look you need to get rid of that woman because like the guy does file for divorce mm-hmm. And I think it's just, I mean, it's a situation mm-hmm. where, like, I think his mom probably dominated his life. And then that's why, like, 
in these mm-hmm. interaction with her, uh, with uh, Lorene and the, in the diner, why he's so like, you know, because he doesn't have, because his mom controls him, he has to try to like be, you know, dominating of, of her, uh, in that situation. That, that was just my conjecture. Yeah. I'm sure, I'm sure that's probably some, somewhat of what happened. Uh, so, so Lorene goes back to Texas with her kids uh, there's a really heartbreaking scene where, because um, after the divorce, I guess she wasn't owed child support or she wasn't being paid child support. It's very unclear what the yeah. whole child support situation is. Uh, she has to go back to work as a waitress. And so she's basically living her, leaving her small children like at home alone. And then she's like trying to explain to her like seven-year-old kid, like, can you feed everyone else dinner here? I got to go. Bye. And it just, it sucks. That sucked. And at some point, Lorene realizes she probably can't take care of her. And the reenactment after she mm-hmm. walks out of the house and she's on her way to work. Did you notice that there was a woman mm-hmm. who was sweep, sweeping the, the dirt? Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay, you did. Mm-hmm. I I mean, yeah. not... she That woman was just there to, like, sweep and look at her right. in a judgy way. That's why that woman... But, yeah, there. I mean, she wasn't sweeping a driveway um, or a sidewalk that was dirty. She no. was sweeping... The ground, the dirt. I mean, like mm-hmm. with a little little bit of That's patch right. of grass. As, as, as you do. That's what you do in Austin, Texas. You got to keep your dirt clean. If you're in Austin, Texas, and you've ever seen anyone <laughs> sweeping the dirt, please, please go to iTunes. And after giving us five stars, <laughs> describe in detail what you saw. Leave it right there in the review. Um, that would be really great. <laughs> uh, okay, so so Lorene uh, decides the best thing to do is to give up her give up her kids, and, and sometime after that, she goes to see her sister uh, Ruby, um, and she says, you know, she's just not she's just not okay, and so she the way that Ruby describes it in the very beginning of the segment is that Lorene was kind of on her own wavelength to begin with and so this was probably enough stress that it put her over the edge and so uh, ruby takes uh, lorene to the state mental hospital uh between 1957 and 1961 lorene is admitted there uh five separate times each time she's released she goes back to work but then like she just like couldn't hang with that um and then she'd remit readmit herself to the hospital so it sounds like lorene was not being forced into the hospital she was admitting herself which is good probably <laughs> that she knew yes, she needed yes. some help in 1959 Lorene showed up at Ruby's house uh rather unannounced and had it was had showed up in a taxi with the the meter running I assume and she tells Lorene tells Ruby that she was engaged to a college professor and in the reenactment the the woman playing the sister Ruby was very understanding and looks at her engagement ring is like okay well that's very nice where did you meet and then Lorene is being very cagey about the whole situation and takes off in the cab and then two weeks later Ruby gets a bill for the engagement ring because um, Lorene had bought it herself on layaway or something and failed to make the payments so like needless to say there was no engagement <laughs> or college professor <laughs> in this situation and in the case that wasn't clear uh, and then Lorene just stopped contacting her family. So the last time anyone saw her is when, when her sister Ruby got right before she got the bill for the engagement ring. Um, so fast forward to 1988, 
uh, the mother of this family passed away and left $100,000 inheritance for each of her children, including Lorraine. So at this point, it's the court-appointed attorney who's now working to find and track Lorraine down. He's like, we've searched everywhere. All of the paperwork's. I don't really know what that means. Uh, um, Lorene's daughter, who had been given up for adoption, had in the in the uh, preceding time before their grandmother's death. So uh, Debbie, Lorene's daughter, had had actually found Lorene's family, okay. but not Lorene. Um, at this point, Lorene actually has grandchildren she doesn't know about. So uh, they air the segment, and guess who calls into the show? Not someone who'd seen Lorene, but Lorene herself. Um, I guess she had been working as a housekeeper for just room and board uh, in Little Rock, Arkansas, and she'd been doing that for thirty years. I I think so. I, this how how do I get? How do I get that situation? How do I exploit somebody for 30 years and just like not really well, worry about it? Well, I mean, yeah. Do you know what I mean? I, I presume the situation was is perhaps someone like they found her, you know, uh, realized that she had um, uh, issues and was probably mm-hmm. in a uh, tight spot and just like trapped her in, in the situation where like where she she has to work there to to keep that room and board but in, but you know with no money she mm. she she doesn't she doesn't have time to, to to get money anywhere else so she's trapped in a perpetual cycle mm-hmm. that, that was just my conjecture but i i suspect that's probably the case i mean i wouldn't be surprised uh i had this horrible sinking feeling because when you know they, they they show the reunion and you know eventually she goes back to Little Rock, like I have the I had the mm-hmm. whole horrible sinking feeling that that hundred thousand dollars got like evaporated pretty quickly. It's may maybe, but no, what I would assume is that the lawyer who was looking for this estate lawyer that was yeah. looking for her. And knowing that she has issues may have set oh, it up so in a trust. So she was getting time. maybe a little okay, bit of that, income. That would be, yeah, because I was yeah. just worried that whoever whoever had her, like, trapped, <laughs> just manipulated and, the situation to mm-hmm. get all the money. But hopefully what you, you suggested is the case that the lawyer arranged it so that, like, she yeah, had like, a I steady used... stream income for the remainder of her life. Yeah. I I assume, I assume that because everyone knows she was unwell and probably couldn't manage things right, at that level, right. you know, wisely. Or or like you said knowing that she would be have a predilection for being taken advantage yeah. of in that way. Um here's the thing that I do not understand about this segment whatsoever. If if Lorene's mother had this mm-hmm. money, why did Lorene have to give up her ch- she went back to her ex-husband to get child support, didn't get any. Where was, if the mother had allocated this money when she was alive, why didn't she step in? I don't know. There just seems, they're just, I'm not accusing the grandmother of like doing anything wrong, but I'm just wondering, there's some information right, that's missing. Right, Yeah, I mean, they, they, they don't really. About why the rest of the They really don't talk about Lorraine's mother very much. So we, we, we frustratingly don't really know what the situation is. Is there? Mm. 
Yeah, I just feel like there's some really key details about why other family members weren't helping with yeah. the kids and why everyone got separated. I don't know. Uh, so, anyway, Lorene died in 1997. So, I mean, yeah, that's like yeah, that's like six years uh, of after the broadcast of the episode. So she probably, if, if that money was just coming in a steady stream, she probably was able to live fairly comfortably for all that time. So that's, mm-hmm. and her, her kids got to, to see her again. Uh, so, uh, k- kind of a happy ending. I don't, I don't fucking know, man, this whole episode. You know, what's interesting though, is the next segment. Oh man. That was entertaining. This segment, like not since fumbles. Have we gotten so entertaining of a fugitive? Well, you remember Fumbles, right? Yeah, I do remember Fumbles. Yeah, in fact, Fumbles the bank robber. Honestly, in, in one of our more recent episodes, when we when I was watching it, my first thought was, "Man, I'm I, I am hoping Crystal was thrilled that they're not playing the stereotypical Hawaiian music yeah, when they opened up." I was. Yeah, yeah. They. I I was. They, sh- they actually went with. A jazzy motif that was a lot of fun and, and tonally appropriate for this segment. I was very proud of them. They showed so much restraint. So much mm-hmm. restraint. Um, yes. Our our segment involves a career con artist who, you know, he, he's mostly involved in sort of counterfeiting stuff. They show, show him entering banks uh, as we learn later, basically he's keeping his eye out for uh, estates where you know someone has died and stuff's in probate, and he's trying to pass himself off as the, like the executor of the estate or whatnot, and, in, in order to get the money, um, and he has forged paperwork to go along with it. Uh, the very first part of this reenactment has like the bank manager suspicious. So he asks him to come back in an hour. And when he does, uh, the, the police are there waiting for him. But as we learn this individual who I believe at the time, he was going by the name of Pep Ito, the Bayan. But for the purposes of this pod, mm-hmm. uh, podcast, we will refer to him as Todd Mueller, Mueller, mm-hmm. Mueller, Mueller. Mueller. Bueller. Mueller. It was Mueller. Mueller. Todd Mueller. Uh, mm. Yes. Who, in addition to engaging in various forgery-related crimes, is apparently a bit of a prankster. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, it's revealed that uh, we get situations where you know, he actually fakes paperwork for the release of acquaintances of his from jail. Mm-hmm. And we get this reenactment where a guard tells this inmate, you know, it, 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 your paperwork's come through. It's, it's time for you to leave. And the inmate's like, wait, what? No, I don't get released until February. And like the guard almost is like, has to force him to leave. Uh, the guy, this guy. So this guy, I, I can only assume Todd did not actually 
share that he was going to do that with this guy. <laughs> so I don't know if it was a joke on on the inmate or on the legal system or both. But yes, so we have you know just various reenactments of Todd putting together his forged paperwork. Uh, if you're a Zoomer, you might be perplexed by the weird keyboard that Todd is uh, using that has like a lot of like mechanical uh, mm-hmm. components. Uh, that's actually what is called a typewriter. You may have read yeah, about also it. Liquid paper. Liquid yeah. paper. Well, I mean that's still that's that still gets used a lot, right? No. Oh. <laughs> okay. I mean, I can't think in our modern printing situation where you would be using. That. Well, I actually have used whiteout quite a few times because uh-huh. I will write a letter or a check or I'm going to like mail something to someone and I mm-hmm. put the address and I put a stamp on, but then it turns mm-hmm. out I don't need to mail it, but I, mm-hmm. I can't get the stamp off. So I have to white out the... Oh the address and rewrite it. So if you've ever gotten anything from me where it <laughs> looks like I whited out the, uh, the, the sendee, um, section, that's what happened. But yes, uh, we, and then we get a, an interview with, and okay. And here, here's where like, here's where I, I was a little suspicious. Cause I mean, they, they didn't play stereotypical Hawaiian music. But just about mm-hmm. everyone is walking around in a Hawaiian shirt. Is mm-hmm. is that standard in Hawaii? You've been there, right? Yeah. Did you go into a bank where all the bank employees are wearing Hawaiian shirts? Is that a thing? No, it's to- It's a thing. Yeah. Okay. So the Aloha shirt um, is a very, it's like business casual in Hawaii. Okay. Like an Aloha shirt or what you're calling a Hawaiian shirt is actually can be really expensive. Oh. Um. And like embroidered and stuff, but yeah, that's pretty, pretty standard business attire, I would say. I should have been calling it an Aloha shirt. I'm sorry. Please don't write that's emails. Okay, shirt. <laughs> no, no one's going to do that. It's also a Hawaiian shirt, but it's like an Aloha okay. shirt. I mean, r- more recently, that look has been co opted by like, um, yeah, the, the Boogaloos and alt right folks, but it is still, it's still very much, it's like what you would wear. If you were going to work in Honolulu or something, you worked in an office. So it's like, it's a collared shirt, but it's cool and breezy and comfortable. It's just like a step above a t-shirt. Okay. Anyway, uh, yes. So we get another reenactment where um, the a bank manager becomes suspicious because, you know, Todd, he, he successfully initiated the, the first round of this scam, but... He's coming by and he's like taking large sums out almost immediately. So mm-hmm. he comes in to do another round of business, and the detective that were uh, that Unsolved Mysteries is interviewing, he participates in the the reenactment where he comes up uh, behind the guy. He's like, "Hey, Todd, uh, finally got to meet you." And when they shake hands, behind Todd is another member of law enforcement who slaps the handcuffs on <laughs> uh, just like in the movies. Uh, he eventually 
I was, and this is where I was a little vague. Like eventually he just sort of, uh, he, he gets out. Did you, did you follow what was happening with that? I feel like there's so, like a lot of fake court orders and all sorts of stuff being circulated around. And yeah, I don't, I don't know, but he gets, he gets out of jail. Yeah. And he eventually ends up the first time. Yeah. And like he, he is really playing around with law enforcement. Like he keeps calling them and telling them that he's going to come and turn himself in. Sometimes saying mm-hmm. that he's on the plane, uh, mm-hmm. on his way, but no. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, he's telling them that he's in New York, but he's actually in Chicago staying at a really nice hotel. Um, he sort of, uh, made the hotel management a little bit wary because he was like having these meetings with people in the hotel lobby where he's handing off large amounts of cash. So when it came time to renew his, his stay, they told him that a convention had booked all the rooms for that week. Uh, but Todd, of course, just went and ordered a room via phone. Uh, the room just across the hallway from the one he stayed in, which apparently irked the hotel management enough that they contacted the law enforcement. Uh, mm-hmm. They show up at Todd's room where Roy Hartsock, who was the cellmate who got paroled uh, early, um, is and apparently was still unaware that that was something Todd did, answered. Todd mm-hmm. comes walking around the corner uh, as as one typically does in like a movie. Sees what's going on, tries to turn around, but they catch up with him. Um, and yeah, you know, uh, he ends up in confinement for a while. Then, like I think, ten months mm-hmm. later, he's like, "Oh, I'm feeling sick," and he said he swallowed a razor blade. Uh, mm-hmm. They take him to the hospital, and he manages to escape, leaving someone to like walk in and find the handcuffs dangling from the gurney he was on. <laughs> yeah, the person who walked in basically like slapped the side of his face and went and did the Home Alone scream <laughs> face when he saw that Todd was gone. Yes, yes. Um, so I don't know if Amazon Prime was uh, jamming you up on seeing the ending of this segment. Uh, also. No, I got I got this the end of this segment, but I also really I didn't want to skip over the the Hawaii cop. Yeah, being like like I'm not mad, but you're just being dumb. <laughs> that was basically his appeal right. to Todd to just <laughs> knock it off. Like like we're not mad, bro, but just like you're gonna get caught if you keep toying around with the cops. And well, then we get the updates. So. He did have the that that detective did have sort of this attitude of like bewilderment i mean yeah Mm -hmm. obviously he wants the guy apprehended but it was just confusion as to what was happening like why Mm -hmm. would why would someone do this (laughs) he is he is like you know taking risk that no one else would think like todd i guess todd actually just appreciates comedy enough that he's willing to risk being apprehended and uh, he actually ends up being apprehended. I guess his real name was David Livingston. That's not a fun name. No, it's no Pepito de Banyan, which was one of his aliases. You, you pronounced that much uh, better than I did. 
I don't know that that's correct. Oh, okay. Never mind. <laughs> uh, yeah, so the, the little white text update was basically Todd was charged and he served his time. Um, but there is a little bit more of a uh, very funny wiki update here. <laughs> On top of that one. Oh, tell us about it. Um, in the year 2000, Todd was arrested. Or I guess David was arrested again and charged with defrauding a Japanese business businessman okay and his current activities are unknown so apparently he got arrested again in 2000 served some more time and now he's just just out <laughs> he's just sending letters and joking around <laughs> with society at i large. think he's probably just spending all of his time on like 8chan at this point or 4chan <laughs> or something you know what i mean he's just trolling online like, like like he he had like when when memes became a thing he's like hey i can I can do something with this. Yeah. <laughs> Precisely. Yeah. Precisely. He's he's in the he's uh, heavily invested in the meme economy at this point. Yes. Um Okay, well. Anyway. <laughs> oh boy. Well, that was a fun one, Robbie. Let's talk about uh let's talk about uh, a real fucking bummer of a situation here. Yeah. I I admit like if you're new to this podcast, you will discover that I kind of zone out during the lost love segments. Mm -hmm. So I'm often confused or perplexed by what is going on. So uh, please, uh, please tell us about the Vess family situation and maybe I'll actually understand what happened. More like the mess family situation. Uh, You know what I mean? Um, okay, so Shireen is the main main family member that that's going to be talking. So we had Lorraine earlier. This is Shireen Vess Davis. Um, she is uh, somewhere in the middle of birth order of nine children in total. Okay. Um, yeah. Their parents. Uh, now, I, I want to point something out. Um, in the nineteen early nineteen sixties, her father, who worked in construction, uh, and her mother was a housewife, and they had nine children. Now, granted, they were probably not wealthy, but can you imagine nine children being supported off of one person's income in anything in the United States today? Because I sure can't. Well, sure enough, it was all it was all a lie. Because James was a dangerous alcoholic, and there's a really stupid reenactment. <laughs> Where he comes home from work and and his wife, Wanda, had hid his bottle and James... And the guy doing the reenactment was really hamming it up with the drunk thing. Right. Like, he was, like, knocking things... He was just being, like, a really fake drunk... I was confused because he was looking for his alcohol. He hadn't consumed it yet. So he he was already... Maybe he consumed something before coming home. Maybe. Yeah, I guess so. I guess he was too drunk to work a lot, too. And he was really abusive to Wanda. And we get to see a little bit of that in the reenactment. Um, yeah, so so James comes home. He's like, where's my bottle? And Wanda's like, I don't know where it is. And then and then James comes goes after Wanda. And then the so some of the older brothers pull James off of Wanda. Um, Wanda had enough. She she moved out and she filed for divorce. Um, she was determined to make a new life for herself and her children. Uh, she decided, I mean, as as in the previous story with Lorraine, the, really the only work she could get was as a waitress at a local bar. Mm-hmm. 
I also want to point out that in the Unsolved Mysteries segment, it said at the age of 34, the age of 34, she had nine children. Um, so that means, I mean, if I'm doing any kind of math on this, pretty much from the time she was a teenager, she was like pregnant for her entire adult life. Basically. I mean, that's nuts. Just suck. That's nuts. Constantly having another person inside of you. <laughs> yeah, that's not. It's anyway. Yeah. Okay, so uh, in 1974, when she was when she was tending bar, James entered the bar as it was Wanda's 34th birthday, and he wanted to reconcile with her, and she refused. Um, anyway, he comes back in the bar with a shotgun. One thing leads to another, but you can guess. And James decided that it was more important that she admitted that she was still in love with him or something than be a mother to their nine children. Um, he was actually picked up uh, for having shot Wanda at another bar because he confessed to the murder to, to basically everyone in the They bar. kind of like discuss, they kind of reveal that information that was almost uh, to suggest that he, he was actually bragging about it when he, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, he, so he gets picked up by the cops. He pleads guilty. He goes to life in prison. That's, and then he died there in 1983. So James and Wander, uh, you know, out of, out of the picture at this point. Um, so there's, there's nine kids and they got to go somewhere. Uh, I guess there wasn't any one family member that could take all of them. So, and it seems like Shireen in retelling the story has a lot of resentment towards her other family members for not making more of an effort to take them in because she thought that her impression was that the kids just reminded everyone else in the family of the like horrible murder that had happened. And so they didn't want to want to deal. Man, having these kids that, around like, is like a real bummer kind of attitude. Yeah, yeah. I mean like, but I can like kind of see where their other families might've been coming from too. You know, like I kind of get it. What, what I got confused uh, by is they describe a funeral uh, and they describe it before they talk about when, when, you know, when the shotgun murder happened and I, I was, conf- I was, I admit I wasn't paying attention. So at first I was conf- confused. Cause I like, I zoned back in and I was like, okay, they're at a funeral with their mom. And like one of them, like, I guess she, maybe it was Shanine was like, Oh, talking about how the younger sister wanted to hold the mom's hand. And she was like, no, and then, like, uh, discuss how she did hold the mom's hand, but like she came back and asked why it was cold. And I, at first, mm-hmm. I was like, "Oh, it's a, uh, it's some analogy about how the mother was feeling really distant at that moment." And then afterwards, mm-hmm. I was like, "Oh no, wait, <laughs> the mother is the one in the coffin." <laughs> I, I really wasn't paying attention, uh, very close attention. Yes. <laughs> Yikes, Rob. Rob Dog. <laughs> uh, Your dog's barking. Yeah, I'm I, I realize that. There's not much to be done about it at this moment in time. Okay. Um, so <laughs> anyways. So the siblings are all they scatter to the wind, and Shireen uh, was was sent to foster care and eventually ends up running away from that and uh spends some time on the streets uh herself mm-hmm. um much like our our previous story and um she ends up putting herself through business school or something right 
yeah, she goes to San Diego, goes to business school, gets married, so on and so forth. And then, uh, yeah, so the so the, the siblings all end up managing to find each other. And then, so where Unsolved Mysteries comes into this is that they are trying to find their youngest sibling, who they weren't able to locate, and his name is Heath. Yeah. Um, and then, well, as these things go, yeah, they immediately found him <laughs> because of the show. <laughs> Uh, and then weeks later, they had a nice little reunion segment where five of the siblings were able to get together, and Heath was really excited to meet everyone. But Heath was like really broy. You know, like. it's so funny too because when you see the pictures of him as a little kid, he looks like Ralphie from A Christmas Story, <laughs> and he ends up growing up to be like bro. I wonder though if any once every all of these siblings got back together, if there just ended up being like a couple of siblings that were trying to freeload off of the other one. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Well, if it was just like I mean with with nine statistically one of them had to be like a moocher, right? Yeah, I I just figured that must have been true. Yeah, I often wonder about all these 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 family reading situations because like particularly particularly if this was happening today I could see situations where a family reunion happens and then during the course of the meal like one of them like starts talking about Trump <laughs> and an <laughs> argument happens and you know one sibling is like leaving the <laughs> leaving and like is not going to speak to the other one again <laughs> yeah. yeah uh yeah i mean i guess like how long do you tolerate a mooching lost relative uh, before you you sort of kick them out, right? Like initially, if they uh, were like, "Hey, can I crash <laughs> here?" Yeah, I mean, you mm-hmm. you can't say no to that. You can't. Mm-hmm. I mean, you, 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 there's no way. So mm, you well, you can't <laughs> actually. Um, is my opinion, but uh, I say you got you got three nights, and then you need to be thinking about moving on to a hotel, and that's that's true of people that I like too, like my friends and stuff. Like that's that's your hard limit, it's a three night situation. Oh wow! Here, here, here at my house, yeah. Glad, so I'm, be advised. I'm glad I never <laughs> tested that situation. <laughs> I feel our friendship is the better for it too. Okay. Uh. uh well, well, shit, dude. Um, should we, uh, wrap this episode up? We should probably wrap this up. Yeah, I think we probably should. It's probably time. I think we've probably beggared enough for, uh, iTunes reviews, but if you want to get in touch with us on Twitter, we're at reenacted and reenact that mm-hmm. at reenacted pod, um, reenacted pod at gmail.com. No one has sent us a shitty small town story. So I want to hear about your shitty small towns. I want like really podunk, really just garbage stuff okay so just we'll read it if you send it um and robbie what's the other thing oh the facebook facebook oh, people are uh we have a page uh reenacted and unsolved mysteries podcast page uh mm-hmm. but really the real funny stuff is on reenacted fan reenacted podcast fans i think that's the name of it uh you can go there and post and share all sorts of hilarious stuff um and i guess we're done with the episode yep i guess that's it do you want to do the thing yes join us next week for another
another thrilling edition of unsolved mysteries.